Rhonda, thank you for uh, taking the, the time to visit with us today. You are officially uh, our second uh, uh, interview for the Medicaid Transformation Podcast. And this felt like a really fitting discussion just because not only have we had a chance to spend some time together, but uh, I've just become a big admirer of the things you're, you're not only doing uh, here at, at Providence St. Joseph Health, but the things that you've done in your career um, and, and, and your work over the last number of years. And it might just be a nice place to start in having you uh, introduce a little bit about your history and background as it pertains to the Medicaid program and how you ended up here. So David, first, thank you. I love working with you and I love the opportunity to talk about an area that I have a lot of passion around. Um, I would have to probably start by telling you uh, my first introduction to the Medicaid program was as a recipient in the 1960s um, in New York City. Um, I, we depended on the Medicaid program as well as public health department for my health care needs. Um, despite the best efforts of my parents who worked really hard and um, had all of my siblings around us. When I became really ill as a child, we actually depended on the program to help me during a short but a very important part of my life. That was my introduction to the program. Um, I have enough memory and um, recall of what it felt like um, for the difficulties with getting access to really good care, continuity of care. I also have a really good memory of what it was like to use the public health department and um, providers who were dedicated to providing care to individuals who were um, vulnerable and um, of lower income. Um, once I decided in third grade to be a doctor, I'm very stubborn, very tenacious, <laughs> um, <laughs> I to do these I didn't things. know this, yes, by the way. Yes, that, yes. That I'm feels fitting, <laughs> actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's right about where I was. Um, I went through and um, shortly after uh, completing Cornell and, and completing um, medical school at Morehouse in Atlanta um, and then during residency in family medicine I immediately went and worked uh, for Kaiser Permanente initially and then Mayo Clinic um, and you might think well those aren't really particularly Medicaid focused um, entities um, but they do serve Medicaid and they do at that time they did pro bono Medicaid work and, medic and um, uncompensated care and so that actually kept me kind of tied to what I consider to be my roots uh, I further had the opportunity to actually really and um, on a personal level give back uh, to the Medicaid program and the dedicated professionals that run um, the health care services provided through it um, by being Secretary of Healthcare for the state of Florida. And that, that role included running the Medicaid program as well as health care facility regulation, digital health, and all that kind of stuff. Um, having a similar role in Georgia as the Georgia Commission of Health also running Medicaid and the state employee health plan, as well as digital health um, efforts as well. And then working for CMS in, in between those two adventures, um, right about the time when um, Hurricane Katrina hit. I remember we were trying to find solutions then that would help people um, who suddenly lost not only their homes and, and access to care, but also just basic information about medications, right? And if you remember, there was a great big effort to try to pull together the information we could, and it kind of made it really important to have um, electronic and virtual systems available, right, as part of the rescue effort. Um, nothing like living through a crisis 
whether it's 9-11, Hurricane Katrina, H1N1, any of those things. And all of those experiences I learned tremendously from uh, really strong partners, um, in the, not only in state government and federal government, but the private sector community. Mm. They were my partners. And we overcame some amazing, amazing challenges. Um, now I work for um, Providence St. Joseph Health, um, and I love it. I am, am president of Population Health Management. This is a division that we created de novo in uh, 2015. Um, and I am also CEO for IN Health Solutions, our population health management company. Uh, probably more important than what I do and what my role is, is the group that I get to work with on the Medicaid strategy. Um, so about 2016, 2017, we made a concerted effort to step back and look at how we were addressing the needs of our poor and vulnerable populations, but more specifically on Medicaid itself. And one of the things we realized is that while we were doing good work and had um, options for care and services and access, we weren't doing the best work. We didn't step back like we should have. Um, and so that's what we focused on. It's um, it's a it's a well number one. It's just a really really interesting uh, arc to, to your life and career. And you know, I, I, you know, prior to us hitting the little red button on our discussion, we we talked a little bit about finding our you know our purpose and the thing that drives us to have impact. And and what a what a powerful narrative for um, for you, Rhonda. Not only growing up as a as a beneficiary to this uh, in this program, and then in third grade having this this intense desire that followed you all the way to where you are now to to not only practice medicine but to have um, system level impact. I um, I'd love to to take a minute um, as a segue as we start thinking about d diving into Medicaid here, and and get your thoughts on population health management and. As you know, as you know, we have this we have this really um, unique proclivity in healthcare to identify a term of art and a bunch of conferences organized around it and sessions, and we talk a bunch about it, and then we move to the next thing. And population health management is is a concept that, of course, kind of gets affixed to accountable care and clinically integrated networks and so on and so forth. But I. I think it has uh, or needs to have a more specific and more focused theme. And so how do you think about that term, um, both kind of in, in the Providence St. Joseph Health ecosystem, but, but then when you start to think about Medicaid and the role of, of that function? You are so right. If you say the words population health to a room full of individuals, you will have that many <laughs> different definitions <laughs> of it. And, and they'll all be right in, right. in, the, in some way. It's basically um, like that, uh, the, the parable, right, of the seven blind men standing around an elephant. They're all touching it, and they all describe the part that they feel, right? Right. And they're all correct for that particular area, but it's the overarching um, vision and understanding that is really important. So for Providence St. Joseph Health, we actually had to take, a, uh, again, a, probably a step back because we were confusing population health the discipline, right? The effort to actually understand healthcare outcomes for a defined population, and to also understand where there were differences, so um, health inequities, right? So the science mm -hmm. and the discipline of understanding the population health, the outcomes of the defined population, and then the work of population health management, which is to improve those health outcomes, 
and to be able to do so in a way that actually used tools, interventions, programs that measurably improved not only health outcomes, but all the intermediary steps that lead up to health outcome improvement. It also needed to be, um, through health population health management, the work of actually managing our resources appropriately and being able to financially sustain the program so they could continue the good work. So when people talk about population health management um, now, there is some, some of that, um, that crosstalk between population health management and value-based care and ACOs. Now, in our own organization, we talk about value-based care being a way to demonstrate what we are doing as we manage the population. So we say that we're going to develop and interventions and processes and tools that are actually going to improve clinical quality, that are going to improve the patient experience, that are going to um, more appropriately uh, manage our utilization of resources, and actually make sure that when we do these things, we also have the financial and operating systems that support our success and continued sustainability. So when we put all that together, uh, we say, well, we're doing value-based care. We actually are. But we're first understanding the population, understanding where there are gaps in care, where there are gaps that need to be addressed, and then putting in um, the full force of who we are, clinicians, operators, financers, the whole nine yards, and the information systems is the infrastructure, is the background, the backbone that actually helps us get this done. So um, they're not siloed, they're not distinct. Um, so we talk about population health, the science or discipline. We talk about population health management, the work to improve the health outcomes. Um, we layer in value-based care, and that's kind of, it shows us on a, a monthly, quarterly, annual basis, the value that we are demonstrating for the patient first and foremost, um, to our um, uh, payers of care, to our providers of care, and to our regulators of care. We, should, we demonstrate the value. And then probably the next piece is um, how do you actually tie that to the financing of yeah. care? And that actually um, is a, a component of the work that a lot of people are still a little bit uncomfortable with, but, but honestly we have to get over it because that's the way it gets sustained. So um, we, we always have difficulty sometimes when I walk in and we're talking about the, uh, the population. So for the Medicaid population in particular, um, we have people who are so passionate about um, the clinical care, the access and the needs that need to be, um, to be improved and better coordinated. In addition, we know that just doing clinical care alone, and I, I hate to say just clinical care, but we also have to incorporate in um, those solutions and community resources that address the social determinants, also known as vital conditions, um, that impact someone's health and well-being and if they are addressed in, um, in a really uh, coordinated and disciplined way, it actually improves their health outcomes as well. It is really difficult to say that we're going to improve the health outcomes of a community uh, for chronic conditions and then realize that the people who we're talking about are either homeless, don't have nutrition, don't understand because they don't have the education to understand. They don't have these things that actually make them are, are more uh, productive, wholesome, well-equipped person to address the healthcare condition. That makes sense. It does. I, and I, I like this framework. Um, 
a lot. And I, I want to I want to go down two different paths here. So so to kind of restate what, what I what I think I heard, there's the there's population health as a discipline. There's population health management, which is the core on the ground work. Value-based care, which is the way we we determine, measure the the value that's being created for the patient. Uh, performance. Performance. Uh, on a, on progress on that performance. Against that work. That's right. And and then kind of as a wraparound, how are we using the dollar to shift systems to align incentives, in, in ways that are consistent with that framing? That is absolutely perfect. <laughs> Do yeah. we, can I have an, another gold star? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That is absolutely perfect, and that's the whole that's the whole bag pulled in together. Um, if we try to do population health management, and we try to focus on improving the health outcomes, but we don't actually address the utilization of resources, we don't address funding, we don't address um, the perverse incentives of trying to pay per click or per service as opposed to per value. If we don't address those things, we never get to the point of actually achieving the goals of improving health outcomes and doing it in a way that it is financially sustainable. And, uh, and that perpetuates the, the fragmentation and the diffusion in, in a system that um, really drives inefficiency. Just this is an editorial comment and you know, given that this is only the second time we, we've done this discussion, I, I suppose anybody that's listening to this will hear me say this over time because it's one of my my shticks, but we, we move $3.7 trillion through this system every year. And I, I think there's a really important question that we have to reconcile with as, as Americans. Is $3.7 trillion a sufficient amount of money to, and, and, uh, and uh, you, Reinhardt's new book, Priced Out, right, to provide the same level of care, consistent good quality care for every man, woman, and child, despite um, so, uh, social, economic, racial disposition? And I would argue the answer is, is it ought to be sufficient. It ought to be enough money. It might, but it needs to be spent in the right way. That's the key, and right. and so these the system, the way in which we spend this three point seven trillion dollars filters through a system wrought with the, this inefficiency and and these mis and these these misalignments. And what you're describing, this framework, is a way of thinking about a community and how you tie that together. So this this is where I want to pivot for a minute. Let's, um, I want to I talk about the community in a second, but let's jump up and, and talk Medicaid strategy. Um, this, is, this is one of the things we've, we've noticed in this work is that the 30 some odd health systems that we have the privilege of, of interacting with, uh, all are leaning in and, and doing a lot of important things. But when we sit down with many of them and we say, where's your Medicaid strategy? They'll point to their community health needs assessment. Um, or, or, they, or they just don't have one, certainly not something that has been kind of blessed and sanctioned at the board or the executive level. And I think we all recognize what an important opportunity that is. How do you think about setting strategy? Like how, what are the determinants in, um, in, in the inputs to setting that strategy? What is the process and then how are you managing that at the system? So I can share with you how we approached it, and it is by no means perfect, but it's working for us. And what we did was we decided that um, we would treat the Medicaid populations as real populations of people and not as um, a charitable giving focus, 
Um, we made this as our, this is core to what we do. This and is not is community benefit. This no. is well, Community care. benefit can help supplement some of the community level resources that help the population. Yes. But like a lot of things we do, we usually want to run to a solution before we've actually figured out what the real question is. And you can't figure out what the question is unless you actually understand the population. And so that's when the discipline of population health and population health management comes in. Right, so the first thing we did at Providence was actually look at our Medicaid populations. And I don't mean at a system-wide level only because that doesn't work. Healthcare is local. So we basically created um, data books first and then strategic playbooks and implementation plans. Um, and so we got a bunch of people in the room who first said, well, we would love to do this. Let us show you. I said, wait, hold on a second. We're going to start with the patient population first at a region, state, community, and what we came to find out was even a facility level. Hmm. Um, a lot of the assumptions that people have made about the Medicaid population, we found some true and some not true and some not relevant to individual communities and facilities. So we did the work of figuring out who the population was, how they have been accessing care with us, unfortunately mostly ERs and hospitals as opposed to primary care, digital health, preventive services and wellness, right? We, we want to go upstream and improve those, but we figured out that we didn't have enough on the upstream, but we had a lot on the acute side, right? Um, and then we also figured out that Providence in all seven of its states is the number one provider of hospital care for the Medicaid population. I would like us to be the number one provider of care and services overall, as opposed to acute care because then that means that we have not met their needs upstream. Hmm. Make sense? It does. It's a, it's a, that's a great metric. So we started with understanding the current populations, um, patient demographics, geography. We tracked them by zip code. Um, we figured out um, um, which ambulatory services, which outpatient services, what inpatient, ED, long-term care. Um, we figured out most costly, uh, most extensive, uh, all of the usual parameters that we use in assessing a population, um, including ED use, hospitalization, readmission, pharmacy costs, et cetera. And then we stepped back for a minute and we said, okay, so um, we forgot one big thing, and that is all of the um, social determinants, social factors, and community health profiles. We have this information. Most health systems do, but it needed to be integrated in so that when we looked at our individual communities and our regions, we actually had a more robust picture of what was going on. Um, the third thing we probably did was figure out, you know what, um, we're not here by ourselves, and to act solo, one short change is what we could do, and two is a little bit arrogant to think that you can do it all, right? You need to work with the partners. There are people who know better, who have already been experienced, and they may need our, our support, um, they may need resources to do their jobs and do what they do well, and so we need to formalize those partnerships. We did the work of figuring out um, big buckets of work that were generally um, in need of focus in all of our regions, and then we fine-tuned it down to the region, to the community, to the facility. 
And so the, um, we divided it into two pillars because you can't have strategy without pillars. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, one pillar focused on complex patient care. Okay. Um, and we called it that because they're complex, not because they, they have both clinical, chronic conditions, and social service needs, community needs that actually had to be addressed. And we tried to, um, to, to kind of pick out the six big things that we wanted everybody in all seven states to focus on. And so we said, so let's look at what we do for, um, for care management, inpatient case management and transitional care. Um, what are we doing for our community resource partners? So when we looked at access, right, ambulatory um, within our system and with partners locally, right? And then we looked at um, where we needed to formalize community partnerships with both traditional and non-traditional partners. So that could be FQHCs, it could be rural health clinics. Um, and then we started um, also pulling in people who we believe could actually extend our reach, and those are digital health partners. Right? In between a physician appointment, an emergency room, a clinic visit, and a hospitalization, there's that gray space that is basically an opportunity for us to intervene and to connect people. So we did complex patient population work. We looked at actual, literally, Medicaid program policy for every state, federal policy, to see where there were opportunities that perhaps we had not maxed mm. out, right? Um, and that includes um, inc integrating in some of the mental health work, um, integrating in some of the perinatal work, all those kinds of things. And so um, every single region had those big six categories for complex patient care, and as we said, so basically, this is your data that shows what your population looks like. These are the interventions providers and care that you have today. Note the gap. How would you like to address each of these six buckets for improvements? And so they developed strategic playbooks. These are the regional people on the ground in the community um, and basically formalized um, interventions and implementation plans. And then we set um, with them performance measures and goals annual goals for a five-year strategy. So that's complex care. Pillar two. Pillar two, focused on finance and operations. Now, a lot of um, that type of work actually happened at our system level with regional partners. So it actually meant that we could actually standardize some of our approach, improve our processes, and pull it together in a way that was much more effective. That included things from looking at our Medicaid managed care contracting, hmm. where we actually incorporating in value-based care terms, that we actually um, make sure that we included care management, that we actually uh, work with the, our managed care partners and determine that we had agreement and common ground on the value we would provide to the Medicaid population because they deserve to have value too, right? Quality, experience, utilization of resources. Um, then we looked at um, how are we actually handling our financial operations. You know, a lot of health systems are going to want to focus on commercial payers, right? They want to focus on Medicare payers. Um, and sometimes they don't give the enough focus on the Medicaid payers, right? Whether it's a state government for fee-for-service or a managed care plan. And so we looked back and we said we need improvements and underpayments, denials, we needed to work on our CDI, our clinical documentation. We needed to have a better understanding of our risk stratification and identification of chronic conditions, right? 
Um, we needed to do things like um, reassess our DISH programs and payments. Um, we needed to max out um, with the state government partners our um, grant programs through the Medicaid program, whether they are administrative or actual care delivery, uh, because there were waivers, Medicaid waivers, that we could tap into. And so how do we be a better partner with the state Medicaid program to make sure that that actually occurs, mm -hmm. right? Um, then we started working as well with some of the, uh, the federal programs, um, not just the Medicaid within CMS, but ARC, right? Um, the uh, HRSER for our federal qualified health centers, yeah. right? Um, so how do we do that? So we, we did that as a system with our regional partners bought in to give us examples, to give us ideas, uh, to work on making improvements. Medicaid in every state is completely different. They have one common thing now, and that is that they always pay a lower rate <laughs> for services of care um, compared to Medicare and commercial, with the exception of Alaska. And that's changing as we speak. Yeah. Right? Um, so that meant that while we're trying to do complex patient and complex population management, we also need to tighten up our ship. If you're only going to earn 25 cents on a dollar, you should probably collect that 25 cents on a dollar and not write it off. Yeah. Because you're still going to have the full bucket of costs that's attributed to you. Right? We don't shut the door on Medicaid patients coming in. We know that the reimbursement rate is not going to cover their full cost of care, but the little bit that it does cover, we should do a better job of managing those finances and operations. So that's pillar one and pillar two, working on those. Um, getting our regional leaders engaged was not a problem. Um, getting them to cross-functionally talk and work that was actually more of the challenge, but once they started seeing the movement, they've actually kind of embraced it. So every one of our seven states has a uh, state-level uh, playbook, strategic plan, and implementation plan that trickles down to each community and into the facilities. They have performance measures um, for the complex care as well as for the financial measures um, that they report on on a monthly basis. The financial updates are done quarterly, so we can actually track and trend where we're going with this. Um, to date, we've been able to reduce uncompensated costs significantly um, by reducing appropriately avoidable ED use, mm -hmm. which means using upstream interventions and educating them on how they can actually get care, advice, and services without being in an emergency room. Um, and that's um, in part from the regions actually stepping up their game. It's also from working with community partners having alternatives. Both of those areas under pillar one. Right, so we see the emergency room use reduced, being reduced for avoidable ED use. For true emergencies, of course, they go to the emergency room. Um, we started looking at a reduction, seeing a reduction in readmissions uh, because we, I read at the onset, at the time of admission, go ahead and intervene. What are they gonna need? And, do th and are they gonna be set when they are discharged with the follow-up? Um, and we supporting a sustained care transition yes. that would mitigate against a readmit. We, um, we built a care management system, um, but we started first with basically being able to identify who would actually need care management, and the idea is to identify them before they're in an emergency room or a hospital, okay? If that's already occurred, it shows that that's part of their risk assessment, that they've been in the emergency room, that they've been hospitalized, that they've been readmitted. Um, we include in that risk assessment of them um, whether or not they um, 
uh, the chronic conditions, multiple uh, medication use, and then we added in homelessness, poor nutrition, lack of family support. We added in mental health issues, substance abuse history. Right. So those are vital conditions. Those are vital conditions described. that actually impact. Um, because we um, we didn't have a tool, we created a proprietary tool uh, to help us do that risk assessment, um, that risk stratification, identification of people who could benefit from care management. Um, so while we were teaching our care coordinators locally about more robust care management services. We tapped into um, care managers that we had on the health plan side and moved over. Um, we built the community pathways to health that actually feeds in to the, um, to the predictive analytics that we use to determine who would be at risk and in need of care management. And um, we formed formalized partnerships with community resources to be able to address the social service needs um, that they would need as well. So, um, you, you scheduled like three hours for the discussion, right? <laughs> <laughs> There's so much there I want to unpack. Let me just hit on a couple of things okay. really fast that, that, that are well, several things sticking out to me. And then um, I want to I wanna, I kind of continue to pull apart these pillars just a little bit. Um, so one thing you said that I really, really love, and maybe I'm misquoting you, but treating patients, uh, tre treating, uh, treating beneficiaries of Medicaid like they're deserving patients, and I, this is this is so important because I think our language matters so much, and the language that that leaders in the system use in describing this, if we're talking about this in PNL terms or in loss terms, we have fundamentally missed the boat. But if we're talking about I can't remember who said it, but early on in the project, and we all gravitated towards it, somebody said, Medicaid is really its own, you know, if we, if we start thinking about it like a value-based program and making unique investments under the auspices, like, it's, it's still a win if you're losing less and you're, and you're raising the health capital of a community. Right. But our paradigm in healthcare is not wired that way. We, we tend to, to think much differently about Medicaid. So I love that, that notion. Um, the other thing that's really, I, I, I want to just, I want to pause and emphasize how important I think your process, uh, I suspect, has been in being able to move this, this kind of change across seven states. That's a complicated scale. There's a lot of, of facilities and this is, this is, this is not easy work. Nobody's really, this is a, this is a pervasive American problem that we have not um, resolved. And so not only do you have to scale solutions, you have to scale this in a way that we, we don't exactly know what the output's going to be. So it's got to have a, a feedback mechanism that lets us continue to get better and better. And I love this approach of beginning with data and building data books that help to inform hyper-local uh, defects in the process that are leading to a higher use of, of acute care facilities and a lower relative use of upstream assets in a community. Um, then that you have, you essentially build a set of tools that are not intended to be ubiquitously deployed be, because of the, 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 the hyper-locality of the, the communities you serve, but are resources that ought to be able to meet the data and meet, and meet what we know on the ground, which turns into these playbooks and then these very specific strategy plans 
uh, that are then measured and managed as part of the feedback loop process. Um, am, I, am I paraphrasing that? You're, you're doing great. Um, I think when we built the data books, the, the other secret sauce was actually taking the data book, sitting down with the regional leaders, and letting them go through it. They pick through it, they challenge, they question, they supplement it. Hmm. Right? An important That's really exercise. important. And then there were some moments when we had an aha, yeah. we both did. So we, um, this we was so there was shared confidence in the integrity of the data. It's exactly. telling us the right things. And understanding it. So we, um, we were in one community, and we had made an assumption that, um, that the bulk of the, uh, the cost, and therefore the place where we should focus, would be on um, perinatal because we thought their NICU babies were the, were the area that we needed, one of the priority areas we need to focus on um, for that whole community. And then we did the work of looking at an individual at facility by facility. And we had one facility where the number two Medicaid highest cost area was actually psychosis. Really? Yes, so NICU babies were like down number eight. <laughs> Yeah. Right. So yeah. we still want to do our perinatal programs. Of course, yeah. But we we so but the psychosis part wasn't even at the top. We were thinking more like substance abuse or something else along the lines. But this was a acute psychosis from a variety of different reasons. So when we looked at the um, the priority of things that the that local facility and community wanted to focus on, we adjusted. They get to prioritize what they're going to focus on by issue and by population, right, in that community. Similarly, we're doing this, we're using the same approach that we're using for Medicaid or mental health now. Um, we're just putting together our data books. And one of the first glaring things we found out was um, we, we went into uh, Montana with certain preconceived ideas, and there's nothing like data to basically shake that up a little bit, okay? <laughs> um, but we thought that we were even focusing more on um, teens, young adults, um, opioids, meth, right? Um, and so some of that is, that is actually true. What we didn't take into account when we, until we looked at a facility, a particular hospital, was that 68% of those of the babies born were born addicted. Right? So that meant not just teens, adults, but again, maternal issues, perinatal care. And then what are we gonna do with the babies when they're born? Do we have the facilities? Do we have the, the people with the know-how? And how are you supporting the mother in that right. first and critical year? And it's not just a matter of taking care of them in the hospital. There has to be the follow-up. Yeah. Somebody, there's gotta be receiving in when they go home and manage longitudinally over time, right? Because we consider them part of the same family. It's not just a hospital visit. It's gotta be a continuum of care, right? So um, when we do that kind of level work, we actually do our best. Um, but you don't get to, to just stick with um, what people commonly think about the program. We have to actually know it. And that's why we do the, all that hard work up front. So on the, um, one other question about the data, on the hard work up front, you made a comment a few minutes ago that said that we have all the data. We have all the data that we need. And what, what, what are the key data you're pulling together and where are their limitations? And, Let's say there's a, a, a CEO of a, of a health system listening to this right now and they think, well, I don't feel like I have all the data. I don't have claims data. I don't have drug data. What would you be advising like a, a system can do without anybody else to build that kind of data book? First thing would be to do your own self-assessment and, um, and categorize what you have. 
So one of the first things we did in 2015 was to look at all of the different um, data sources. So platforms, software, data lakes, data marts. I mean, it, it became to the point, I think we had something like 48 <laughs> sure data marts. And then when I asked for data lakes, it was so it's just, it just got to be so overwhelming um, with it. And so we actually had a, a a full team that their job was to sit there and, and sift through what are these things supposed to be doing? What are they providing, right? So they kind of went off to down and did that work because we were sifting through. When we found out that a lot of stuff was created, trying to answer a question, didn't quite get there. So there's a lot of stop and starts, but they didn't actually stop processes. When we did that inventory and we cleaned house a little bit, we actually could re then redirect resources, dollars, capital to do the work that we really needed to do. Um, so we use um, clinical data from our EMR. That includes clinical um, prescription, medication, ancillary services that are prescribed, referrals. We all have that. We have um, social factor information that's in our EMR. But, okay. we, but, but bigger, bigger bucket of information actually came from community commons, community health profiles. So an individual person may, may smoke, drink, et cetera, but the community health profile will let you know whether or not there's a substance abuse history is really bigger mm -hmm. in the community as well. Um, so we use the community health profiles as, as a feed in. We also um, added in claims data where we had it. And we tried to match it up to see whether or not the claims data actually was more informative or at least an, um, uh, directionally indicate. Yeah, where created were some going. precision to the right. clinical data. Right, and so data. that actually kind of helped quite a bit. We have a health plan that takes care of our own um, employees as well as um, communities in Washington and Oregon. Um, but that's not system-wide. So what we did was we went back to contracting, because contracting is part of our population health team, and started working with the payers on formalizing the agreement in our contracts for data sharing, right? So claims, medical claims, pharmacy claims. Um, that is a continued work in progress, but that means now we have EMR data, we have claims data, hmm. right? It's not pretty, but it's coming in. Um, and then we also added in the community comments information. We bought proprietary and publicly available community health profile information. Um, we then also added in um, some elements of information that we learned from some of our accountable care organizations, et cetera, um, and value-based care programs that were already out there. So you know every state, every Medicaid program looks completely different in every state. But they do have quality improvement programs. They do have quality performance measures. They do have data on our populations as well as globally for comparison, right? It's important to do that. Um, so we, can, we actually add that in as well to the mix. Um, we looked at pharmacy data obviously because you, you can tell quite a bit yeah. for your predictive. Um, analytics piece. Um, what else did we add in? So it's it's um, kind of like that big black box um, that people talk about. Uh, but it's not just having the data. Once you identified the sources and you've identified your um, source of truth and you've done, you've got somebody who with a dedicated focus on data scrub, um, cleaning it up for you. Then it was actually not only um, integrating it in to a data lake, uh, but then having the, the data scientists and informaticists actually translate that Create for meaning, you. intelligence. It has to translate. We do, we have enormous amounts of data. 
enormous, but unless you can use them in a way to tell a story that you can act on, it's just data. Um, I will add there was one other piece that I didn't include, and that is the financial data. Hmm. Yeah. We tend to want to put all these other things in a separate bucket. Financial information has to carry over, right? What's the utilization costs? Yeah. What are the frequencies? What are the trends coming in? Um, a lot of health systems have inpatient cost accounting data, but they may not have inventory. And so um, that was one of the things that we did about two years ago, inventory, outpatient, cost accounting system data. You cannot talk about understanding total cost of care and then managing it or reducing it if you don't know the total cost yeah. of care. Well, that that'll be that. That's a really important feature of Pillar Two, and I want to go to that in a minute. I, let's unpack Pillar One for a, a, a couple of minutes. And so, we've talked a bit about the 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 uh, the philosophy. We've talked a bit about how to set the strategy, and we've talked a bit about how you're doing that across regions. So now, when a region does the local work under Pillar One, you describe two. Well, I, I at least caught two really important features of Pillar One. One feature is, is how do we, how can we enable um, a better infrastructure, a care infrastructure in the community? And that's not done in a Providence St. Joseph Health silo, but it says, you know, we have, uh, we have care assets, but there's a broader community of care assets. And so you know, FQHCs, community mental health centers, social supports. So Food banks, food banks, yeah. um, welfare administration, early childhood education, uh, program postpartum programs for new mothers, right? There's this entire, and, th and this is the part when we use that three point seven trillion dollars coursing through a system. This is where we have like if, if healthcare is fragmented, like this broader health, the the vital the vital areas, that's incredibly fragmented. So. You know, question one, and maybe even question two is embedded in here is, you know, what is the, the process? How have you thought about bringing that, making that infrastructure stronger and better connected? And then you reference technology. And where can technology be useful in, in, in creating linkages or improving performance or alignments? Um, um, in a unique way, and the you know the bias for that question, of course, is our whole thesis for for this moment in American health reform is that the convergence of of all the things you've talked about, payment models, care models, investment, innovation, size and scope of the problem, like all this stuff converges, and there's this, in my opinion, there's a set of conditions now and an ability to do things we couldn't have done five years ago. And, and I'll be a bit draconian and say, I don't know that we have another five to 10 years to do it. There's a, there's a moment now. How do you think about that infrastructure and the, the, the unique set of things you can do now versus what you could do before? That was a really long question. No, 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 <laughs> but, I, but it's it's spot on. So um, when, I'm, when I'm talking to, I, I do, a, a tutorial for people who are trying to understand population health and the approach to it. I usually start off by reminding them that today is a lot different than even yesterday, <laughs> never mind 10 years ago, okay? Because we are at a different point in our evolution. And the speed at which Love we that. are evolving 
is just amazing. It's like it's growing exponentially. Um, and I, when I tell them that, I say, you know, we can provide care and services in places now safely, effectively, and at lower costs than we could a decade ago or two decades ago, never mind 100 years ago, right? Um, because that evolution is occurring uh, and because medical treatment is growing and evolving and improving as we learn more, um, and as the digital world has caught up and kind of like running out in front, has surpassed, when you put all those things together, that means we have an amazing opportunity to get it right now. And so I tell, people, tell them, I said, no, all of you are younger than me. They are. They're all younger than me. And I said, what I tell them is, when we ask a question now about how can we better serve a population, how can we actually improve an outcome, how can we make sure it's sustained, my expectation is that they're going to talk about what we can do in the future and not rely so heavily on traditional ways of doing things, right? Um, and so that means um, that when we are talking about uh, working with other people in the community, that our, th our thought process isn't about, well, what can Providence build or buy or lease? It's what, who else is in the community with us already who maybe already has some expertise, some skills, but simply needs the resources to get up to scale and span, right? So when we talk about all those community partners you mentioned, um, the challenge has been not to just say, well, we've got all these people and they're homeless. Well, surely the shelter will take care of them. No, that's not the answer. <laughs> the answer is working with the shelter and then working with other partners, including business partners who have an interest in actually addressing transitional housing. Shelter can only take care of somebody for a short time. Shelters are not the, they were an intermediate, they're an emergency stage, right? Yeah, it's, it's for a moment of crisis. Right. So. Um, Providence, other health providers, um, other social service providers, other nonprofits, but for profits, employers have an interest in maintaining the health of their community, the productivity of their workers. And so when we do these things, we, we form these formal agreements, these formal partnerships. Um, it's great when you're able to refer somebody to a social service. It's even better when there's already an agreement and discussion that's already happened beforehand so that the planning already anticipates the needs of a whole population. So um, if we are going to do something like with Harvest Food Bank, they're fantastic, right? We talk about nutrition for diabetics, for anybody, really. Um, when we talk about homelessness, whether it's a shelter or transitional housing, you know, Providence owns, I think, 16 different transitional housing and then has partnerships with other people, right? Um, when we talk about FQACs, are we funding them on a regular basis so that they have sustainable financing? Are we providing them with the technology and the software that they can use to stay connected with us? Um, and then are we providing them sometimes with an on-site person that's helping them with triage, yeah. with patient assessment? So it's people, places, and things that we address. Um, I want to talk a bit about the tech piece of this, but I, I'm just going to give an editorial comment. I'm, I was, last week I was with a health system in another part of the country and I was with a, their, their senior team. We were talking about mental health and one of the comments that was made was, um, and we were talking about capabilities and tech and, and so on and so forth, and, and this person who, who um, is really passionate said, Look, the fundamental thing is we've, we, we need to build more facilities and we need to hire more psychiatrists. And 
I thought to myself, for, and, and I actually responded this way, and I, I, I thought about it in, in supply and demand terms. And this is a little bit of, a, of an ugly, um, uh, well, I don't actually don't think it's ugly, but maybe it's a little uh, geeky. David, it's just us here? Yeah. <laughs> we're, gonna, we're doing it. We're jumping <laughs> in. So the traditional way we have thought in healthcare is that we leave demand fixed, or we assume demand is going to be fixed. And then in supply, we believe that the way to increase supply is to build a new building or to hire a new workforce or to initiate a new program. And the fallacy of that is that um, I think where we are today, you can take a dollar and you can extend supply in non-traditional ways by investing in an FQHC's clinical information system or investing in, a, in an embedded uh, behavioral health worker in a primary care setting, that that dollar, that we have enough physical, and that, this isn't the case in all community, I know that, but, but there, is, there is a supply stock that, and, and through technology and these different forms of investment and integration, we could shift that supply curve in ways we haven't been able to. Now, here's the catch. When we get better at doing that and shifting the supply curve to the right, we ought to be able to be decreasing demand over a longer time horizon. Well, that and there's a need to get to equilibrium here. We've got to think differently about it. So, David, um, I'm going to pile on with what, what you just said and say it's not even that um, meeting the demand, it's actually redefining the demand. Right? Well said. Right, yeah. because it's because the idea that you can just simply build a bunch of institutions and populate them with a bunch of psychiatrists kind of negates the whole point of mental health and wellness in the first place. It's kind of treating them after the fact. Or even, even, a, even a person's health, period, health, their health capital. Right, the whole idea of, um, we said, where does, where does the tech come in? Where does the beauty of that opportunity come in? It comes in everywhere from connecting um, clinical, social, community resources, right? It's a team approach. They have to be able to connect, right? And so that's the infrastructure that we need. Um, it comes in and extending care to a variety of services that didn't exist 20, 30, 40 years ago, right? You don't, so if we're gonna build um, a supply that's based on bricks and mortar and capital, we will have missed the, the opportunity and missed the point, right? We may need some facilities, yeah. But the whole idea is it would be much better to be able to provide telehealth services, connect people virtually, let them get their care, counseling, and support through a variety of different ways. You know, um, I tell people that my, my oldest son is 27 years old, and he has heard me talk about interoperability in virtual health and all these things for all of his adult, all of his life, actually. <laughs> and so he actually heard me talking about interoperability and connecting people and doing all this stuff back when he was in... Um, middle school, and I was practicing this speech, and I was just like, isn't it going to be fantastic if we can connect all these people and get them to talk? And um, isn't it be great if, if, um, if um, providers of care and services actually knew from um, being able to look at past um, access and care and services, they can anticipate and plan for what you might need. And isn't it great? And I was going on and on and on, and, and you know, there's nothing like um, a preteen boy to kind of, you know, finally make eye contact. <laughs> Tell you, you how it is. Make eye contact and finally, like, oh my God, he's looking at me. He's actually listening. Um, <laughs> look at you and go, you mean like Toys R Us and Pizza Hut, dear mom? <laughs> I mean, just 
just a little bit of kind of like, wow. He, he and his generations and the generations that have come after him have a, not only a, a higher expectation, but a, a realistic expectation that we would incorporate in. Yeah. Digital health, connectiveness, right, as core to what we do. Uh, mental health is a great opportunity to do that, but, but healthcare in general needs that infusion. And I'm not telling you anything new, but I'm telling you that there needs to be the connectivity between the partners. There needs to be direct consumer access to services in a way that doesn't involve them actually physically being in a room with you. They need both, but they but there's plenty of space in between visits where that can actually be of help. But but here but, but I agree with all that. Here is the thing though, Ron, that, that I think is is becoming new to this conversation nationally, which is the which which follows along the process we, we spent a few minutes describing a moment ago how the, the, our, our modus operandi in healthcare is we see an access gap and then we project that the, and, and then we define the defect that creates that access gap in very classical terms. It's either a facility or a worker. Um, and, 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 and in a silo of an existing network that I know and I understand. And, and there are historical, financial, social reasons that, that we are in that construct. The, the difference, I think I would argue, and, and I, I feel you, you validating in the discussion, is that our ability to not only integrate data and, and create uh, informatic meaning from those data to tell us specific uh, uh, biopsychosocial uh, bio um, dynamics about a market gives us a, a far different place to examine supply and to redefine demand That's it. and then create a strategy to drive equilibrium. That's it. In a market, in a, in a local market where, where the second most prevalent condition is psychosis, which is unusual, but, to, but requires its own adjustment and, and, and supply and demand. Yeah. And the reason we know it's psychosis or we know that it's drug abuse or we know that it's opioids or we know that it's alcohol it's because we've used that data right. to understand that in the beginning, right? I, I worry that people want to run to a solution before they understand what the population actually has and needs. So I agree with you. I totally do. But it's a totally different dynamic. It's a totally different dynamic. The other, the other, the other quick consideration that starts touching up on pillar two is those solutions tend to be that the funding, the resource mechanisms for those solutions are traditional. Are traditional and they are finite. They they oftentimes have a beginning, a middle, and an end. They cannot they they, they do not create value on their own, and hence they cannot be financially self-sustaining over a long run. And you are absolutely right. And that's I consider that part of the work that we have to do in that that financial pillar is changing the financial operations, how it's being viewed, the operations itself has to, have to adjust. We're so used to, as you say, doing capital operating expense, admin budgets, focused on building um, facilities, bricks and mortar, um, personnel, clinical personnel. We may need some of that, but we need a whole bunch of other stuff before it right. and after it. And the data should be telling you which of those elements exactly. you need. We, we always talk about we want to do evidence-based care. This is no different. This is evidence, data-driven strategy and implementation and then assessment of their own performance. Right? There's, there's math and science that can be incorporated in with our compassion for people, 
and the, the art and science of medicine itself, as well as social service. And that's, that all has to be brought together. I, I, you know, I get all excited and, and energized when I have these conversations with you, and, and I bet you thought that you would have to just pull information out of me, and, <laughs> and you have since figured out, how am I gonna get her to stop? But this, this is today, and it is a future that's only gonna continue to evolve, and it's gonna evolve at a pace. It also has to be flexible. So we kind of know that we need to move forward with all these things, but we're not moving forward in a vacuum, right? As regulatory changes occur, as social changes occur, as political changes occur, as all these things are occurring, we have to be able to um, both be aware of where we need to pivot and adjust. At the same time, we cannot lose sight of the North Star, cannot lose sight of the goal. Um, so for all the things that we've been talking about today, it still has to drill down. It has to come down at the end of the day to, did we actually do something that actually improved the health and well-being of a patient, of a family, of a community, and of a population? It still has to translate down. So as excited as I get about some of our processes and our tools and our tech, it still has to do that. And um, the people who um, have that kind of a commitment and a dedication to seeing it all the way through are the people that we want to support and grow. And build a system that, 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 that creates the conditions to you know, let them do their best work. Um, let's, um, let's, let's round third base here on the discussion and, and let, me, let me ask what I think is a bit of a, a closing question. And as um, you know, you've, you've, you've worn a lot of different hats in this world. You wear the hat of a physician. You have worn the hat as a, um, as a policy maker in programs and in and, 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 and states with different ideologies. Um, you now wear a clinical systems or a health systems hat. Um, two questions. One is, as you think about the next five years and Providence St. Joseph Health, what, what do you hope that the headline of, of this, uh, the, the headline of the story will read about the work that you're doing now? What, what do you believe can and what do you hope will have been accomplished? And the, the question that I'd love you to, to use that as a segue into is, thinking broadly and nationally uh, about uh, communities across the country, do you, I feel some optimism. D do you feel optimistic? Do you, do you feel guarded optimism? Um, and how, where, where do you think we're going as a country, um, kind of based on, on our discussion, what we both kind of see happening but know is really hard? So um, let's, let's kind of break this down a little bit. In five years, what I hoped the headline would read about the work we've done here at Providence St. Joseph Health or the work that we do through ION, I'm hoping that it's still that we're able to uh, provide um, one, the, the proof point that shows that we actually did improve health outcomes. We did improve not only clinical quality, but the patient experience and overall well-being. And I mean actual performance measures that are quantifiable. Um, I hope that, too, I can still receive and still see stories from the individual people who were served, that they got what they needed, that, they, um, that we um, actually delivered on the, uh, the Providence promise, know me, care for me, and ease my way. 
right? Now, if, um, if I don't hear number two along with number one, then I haven't been successful, right? Because the patient population is the number one client, customer, Back to the reason beginning. why we're here. Yeah. Um, you were talking about, um, about where do I see us going in the future? I, um, I see in the next couple of years many challenges <laughs> that, um, that make me think, um, that actually drive me to continue to be passionate or more passionate, if that's possible, uh, that actually make me understand that I cannot waver in my commitment, in the commitment of our teams and our providers, um, because we have not only people in need that we know of today, but the, that population is going to be growing. Um, whether it's in the Medicaid space or the increasing number of those people we anticipate being in the uncompensated, uninsured, uncared for space. Um, as we watch um, new policies come out, um, in particular, and I will just say at the policies regarding immigrants, both legal and um, non-documented, that impacts um, the individuals who receive care through our, not only our facilities, but our healthcare providers and our social service partners. Um, so um, that's what we're talking about. You can't lose sight of the North Star, but you have to be able to flex and adapt to other things that are happening around us that we don't have all control of. Um, I, I, I can't afford to be pessimistic, but I can be realistic. And um, when I look at the reality of things that are coming our way, it makes me be more committed, be more um, passionate, not only about the work, but also about the advocacy for the populations impacted. Um, because as we learn and as we evolve and as we see successes in some of the interventions that we do through population health management, as we demonstrate value, we're going to take that information back to the policymakers, to the payers, to the regulators of care, to basically prove what we've been able to achieve and actually have that incorporated in to new changes coming down the pike, or to perhaps positively influence decisions that are being made that we think are going to be more harmful. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. Um, I'll just respond with with my my own um, maybe my own uh, closing thought on this. I. Um, you know, as I, as I think about the next few years, I, I kind of wonder, you know, why, why is there a, a cause in my, you know, to be optimistic? It, to, as you said, the next two or three years, and this isn't, these are not ideological statements, but um, there's no more public funding. The politics around these things are highly complicated and, and visceral even. Um, we keep having the same, you know, debate about access over and over and over again. Uh, as if access is the problem instead of these, which is, access is an issue, but, but the, the core problem are... It's how we do it. It's how we do it. It's the health of our communities and how we build this infrastructure. I, I guess um, at the risk of sounding draconian, um, I've, I've started to adopt a, a mindset that because of those factors, over the next number of years, you're, you're going to see compression and this level of duress on communities and systems and state budgets um, that that is that is going to inflict pain mm -hmm. and pain is the universal uh, convener and, and and the thing that makes people do uncommon things that's exactly right so the question is um, when those moments happen in communities will we have figured enough about 
how to use data um, under, under the principles of, of care management models and value-based care metrics and driving financial alignment, use data to identify opportunities to develop strategies and a toolkit that applies to a local community and meet that pain and those people feeling that pain who are prepared to do uncommon things in that moment. And um, that could end up being a really interesting collision. And so I think the work you are doing and, and the work others are doing as part of uh, our, this, this project become really important uh, to, to, to uh, be, can become a really important resource. Um, and I think our ability and preparation to meet those communities when they, when they hit that moment becomes critical. I'll, last word, how'd you respond, how would you respond to that? So I'm going to tell you to keep your chin up <laughs> and to hold on to some <laughs> of that optimism because I think, um, you know, that old saying that out of adversity comes opportunity. Um, if you remember whenever we have fought as a nation a crisis together, we, we, come, we come together. People come together with some amazing ideas, right? It's sad that we have to get to that point before we um, are so motivated to do it. But there are some fantastic people, young people, old people who've been there and a whole bunch of people in between who have amazing ideas. And a lot of those people are actually in the digital innovation space about and how we leverage what we have and what we are gonna build anew to actually solve the, the solution. Um, I think that little flame of optimism that I'm still holding on to is because I've seen some of the worst and I've seen us find a way out of it. And I, every time I meet somebody who's coming in new, young, excited, and fresh with some great idea, I know that there's like a bunch more coming down the pike and maybe they'll have something that actually is going to, to be that thing that kind of flips that switch and moves it around. I still have confidence that that's still going to occur. And then, um, and then I'm going to talk to you in terms of a little bit of therapy here, um, and that <laughs> is um, we don't have a choice. We have to find a way, right? I, I won't quote Olivia Pope, handle it, right? We have to find a way to be able to do this. There are so many people who are dependent on us to do it. And I don't mean like dependent on a dollar. I mean they're dependent on us um, figuring out a way to coordinate, integrate, collate, whatever you want to put in doing things in a better, more efficient, more effective quality way that actually impacts them positively. I'm saying that because, um, look at me, right? Think about what Medicaid was like in the 1960s, what public health was like in the 1960s, and don't try to calculate my age. Let me just leave you <laughs> with that. Um, right, but there are people who are like me and better and I've met some of them, they're brilliant, they're coming up. Um, and they give me hope, they give me optimism because I hear them talk about, we don't have an option, we have to find a way. Yeah. We have to be successful and we have to do this. Um, so when they come in and they talk about, well, we're gonna build this communication hub, we're gonna build this connection, we're gonna use the data to do this, we're gonna use AI to anticipate, plan, and we're gonna do all these things, I'm like, come on. Show me what you've got. Uh, it doesn't negate what we have, but it will improve it, it will enhance it. And they'll find a way. 
Well, and it's and it's in that it's in that spirit of optimism. I'll uh, I'll close by um, quoting one of my favorite lines from Winston Churchill: "That Americans uh, Americans will always get it right after they've tried everything else." <laughs> and we, <laughs> we maybe at that we may be at that moment. Maybe that's the reason for for optimism. Rhonda, I want to I want to thank you for uh, the work you're doing for the partnership uh, and the project, and for taking the time. It has been a really good discussion. So, um, thanks for taking the time and, and having it. And I I suspect um, we'll want to have another one of these in the the, the the not so distant future. David, my pleasure. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. All right, thank you.